Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. This is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers all things in what used to be known as the global war on terror, but we now call the Long War. And today I have my friend, colleague, Benham Ben Talablu. He is a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies, where he focuses on Iranian security and political issues. Benham is going to be a co-host for Generation Jihad going forward one day a week. Benham, welcome to Generation Jihad. I have to not say that going forward in the future. Great to have you on and looking forward to us co-hosting the show together. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm looking forward to uh, more aggressively embracing this role. Thank you so much. Well, you're perfect for it, Benham. You're the um you're going to be the well-spoken part of this podcast, that's for sure. Certainly a lot to discuss uh in the war. We're going to we're going to tackle a couple of issues today. We have the administration's what looks to be wavering support for for Israel and Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State's trip to Israel, leaked intelligence that the um Israelis are Half of their bombs that are being dropped in Gaza are not precision-guided missile, precision-guided munition. Houthi attacks that are just really spiraling out of control in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. And then we're going to take a wider look at the um, Iran's diplomatic strategy. But let's turn back to the first item. I believe it was yesterday, President Biden said that Israel is losing global support for its operation against Hamas and due to, and this is in put these two words in quote, indiscriminate bombing in Gaza. And then you pair that with uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. He's, I believe he landed this morning. We're recording around 1230 on Friday, December 15th here. So he, uh, and he is there to pressure Israel to wind down the war and get back to targeted raids against Hamas, targeted operations, basically wind the clock back and yet, you know, just go go for terrorist leaders and terrorist fighters. And um, the administration, does it look like a staunch supporter of Israel today? Or does it look like an administration that's trying to play both sides of, of this war? You know, uh, it's quite clear the administration, in, in my view, um, is serious in trying to allow Israel to find both the political time and the military space. Uh, to achieve its stated goal uh, about trying to destroy Hamas. Uh, you know, I, I take the administration commentary about uh, giving Israel that space, particularly after the grotesque attacks of October 7. But the problem is, in the world beyond October 7, not just the domestic politics here, not just the social and kind of technological, your change, your te- uh, technology-enabled changes you're seeing in the debate over what it means to be pro pro-Israel uh, within the kind of classic mainstream left-right divide of, of America, all that notwithstanding, is the optics and the politics of the war. And the U.S. really lack of a diplomatic strategy in the Middle East has caught it flat-footed to the fact that the countries that are have older peace agreements with Israel and the land border, uh, like Egypt and Jordan, are playing a fundamentally different role than the countries that have newer peace agreements and no land border. Uh, like a Morocco, UAE, Bahrain. So they're open to the to the different diplomatic critiques coming from different Arab governments. Um, but all of this 
all this notwithstanding, there was certainly tension with the Netanyahu government prior to October 7, which I think is bleeding over now. Uh, it's impossible to divorce politics in Israel from essentially everything, and it's impossible to divorce that from the nature of the uh, U.S.-Israel relationship. You're seeing commentary from a few weeks ago about Blinken uh, talking about Israel not reportedly having credit or something else on the books uh, for uh, what it's been looking to do vis-a-vis uh, -vis Hamas and Gaza. And now you're, you're, you're hearing all these fits and starts about timelines when a conflict is supposed to be over politically versus when a conflict is supposed to be over militarily. One would have thought that after two decades of U.S. experience in the Middle East where the military battlefield was circumscribed by the political timeline and political clock, we would know better than to put this same failed formula in front of an ally that the administration so uh, wholeheartedly purports to uh, support. But when you add all of these ingredients up, it becomes a very, very, very messy cocktail of, yeah, perhaps from a policy perspective, I still do take the administration seriously when they say they stand with Israel. Uh, but in terms of the day-to-day -day grind of that policy, uh, they are doing and saying things that cast a lot of doubt into their ability to be a good partner. And at the 500,000-foot level, the reason I see a disconnect there is because they have a fundamentally, they being the Biden administration, have a fundamentally different policy towards Hamas than they do towards the Islamic Republic of Iran, the most important patriot of Hamas. And so whatever you believe about my view of the politics or my view of the policies before what I just said, so long as you have that contradiction in your regional policy, uh, it is not going to be an effective way to stand with Israel in the medium to long term. Yeah, it just comes off as unserious. I, I I do agree with you. I think the administration wants to stand with Israel. It just does it by its words. Um, really, don't give off the impression that it's fully standing. I mean, look, could we imagine if our one of our staunchest allies, let's say Great Britain, you know, two months after nine eleven, uh, started to chide the United States, saying we were conducting indiscriminate bombings against in Afghanistan. And then we need to dial back. We need to wind down the ground operations and just started going after targeted raids against Al Qaeda and Taliban leaders. Like how mad would we be here in the United States uh, if that type of message, if that type of front was presented by our our greatest ally? Um, the administration do really better. does. Just, just, just a footnote. I'll do you one better. I remember a few months after the Iraq, I remember people pouring Bordeaux into the sewers in New York. And I remember Freedom Fries. Not that it was wise. In fact, now I think a lot of us see how foolhardy yeah. the Iraq connection was. But but nonetheless, you also had an, in the same political spirit, uh, major allies uh, casting doubt. And, and some of us would say, yeah, rightly. But look how politically we weaponized that doubt that was cast by an ally, whether for good or for ill. Uh, and I remember the Bordeaux in the drain. I remember the Gigonda in the drain. And I'm sure we all remember the, the Freedom Fries. Freedom Fries was one of the most bizarre and laughable things of the early 2000s. Yeah, and I, I left I mean, intentionally left Iraq off the table here because that was a war of choice in the sense. Exactly. Um, even though it wasn't presented as such, it really was. And it was very clear to me at the time that it was the, um, after, you know, we're talking, you know, October 7th was Israel's 9-11. Let's, let's face it. If that attack occurred on the scale here in the United States. I think the numbers are somewhere around 20-something thousand Americans would have been killed. That's how devastating, how impactful 
that Hamas's attack was. So and I think the last thing we would want to have heard from our one of our closest allies um, after invading Afghanistan was that we need to dial it back a little bit. Um, that's just the, the administration just seems to be caving to international pressure to pressure from allies in the Middle East, uh, pressure, domestic pressure from the pro-Palestinian faction, which I think it overrates within the Democrat Party, Democratic Party, but that's neither here nor there. Um, we, we're certainly not going to get into the politics of all this, but you know, I think the administration's making some of these statements in order to, in an attempt to placate like different, you know, internal and external groups. The, the reality is, is it's placating no one by making these statements. Um, the pro-Palestinian or pro-Hamas faction, be it uh, domestic or international, are going to still accuse the administration of supporting genocidal Zionists. And, yeah, you know, the Arab countries or Muslim countries that are unhappy with U.S. support of Israel are going to continue to not be happy. So, um, and then it's and then it's pissing off Israel at the same time. So I I just find these types of strategies, if you can even call it that, to be short sighted, and really not having the the desired effect that I think this administration would like to achieve. There's a good parallel with uh, the stepping up, but still more limited. Uh, U.S. strikes in Iraq and Syria, particularly since uh, October 17th, when the first major batch of militia attacks on our presence in Iraq and Syria took place, which is the nature of the commentary we put out, and you and I have discussed this before with Joe at length, the nature of our political commentary circumscribes the military effect of our military moves. You know, the human mind doesn't create these artificial divides um, that would be tried to project onto foreign policy or to politics. Uh, you know, signaling is both word and, and, and deed. And in a world where I said, we don't really have a diplomatic strategy for the Middle East, our talk, however cheap it may seem to some politicians, is that diplomatic strategy or takes the role or fills the role of that strategy. And when you say one thing to placate one domestic audience and you do one thing to placate another foreign audience, uh, both sides, like you said, will be dissatisfied, and then to see administration lose. Now, Benham, that's well said. You you definitely clarified some thoughts that I had there about how this works. You you are absolutely correct. But absent a diplomatic strategy, the words are going to be taken as strategy, particularly outside of the United States. And you know what they're hearing is is all over the place. Let's turn to, amazingly, U.S. intelligence a couple of days ago, it was leaked out that they estimate that somewhere around 45% of the munitions fired by Israeli aircraft were not precision guided. And this is being taken as evidence, uh, of course, by the anti-Israel factions to mean that the Israelis are looking to commit genocide and destroy all of Gaza and things of that nature. Now, I'm going to say this. Let's say we take the Gazan health ministry's estimates of, I think there's somewhere over 18,000 casualties at face value, which I don't. It's run by Hamas. You know, of those 18,000 killed, of course, you know, 145% of them were civilians and 300% of those were of course, women and children. So that's how the Gaza Health Ministry runs. But let's just take that number at face value. It's a very, the Israelis are very inefficiently conducting genocide based on those numbers. So that's absurd in itself. What people don't understand about these type of conflicts is that, and 
I've had experience with embedding with U.S. forces in, in Iraq, particularly, is that your stockpiles of precision guided munitions are quickly depleted. While the U.S. was conducting counterinsurgency operations in 2007 in Iraq, I watched military units use non-precision guided munitions. I watched helicopters use missiles that weren't guided. I watched artillery units fire regular artillery and mortar units launch non-guided mortars at targets. This is war, and you go to war with what you have, as I believe that's what former Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld said, and he was castigated for this, but he was right. I mean, you use what you have in your arsenal. The Israelis, look, the last number I heard is that they dropped 20, I think it was over 29,000 munitions in Gaza alone. They also have to prepare for a potential war in on the border with Hezbollah as well, where they would need precision-guided munitions to, if, because of the thousands upon thousands of rockets, uh, missiles, and, and other weapon system pointed at, pointed at Israel from there. So, you know, this, I, I find reporting like this to be breathless, to be completely lacking the understanding of war, as if any military in any country, Western country, the stockpiles are completely filled with guided munitions. Ben, I know you know a lot about uh, guided uh, munitions. What are your thoughts on these reports and um, what the Israelis, you know, do they have to conserve uh, some of the stockpile to, to uh, deal with the potential Hezbollah threat as well? You know, there's there's a couple of things that come to mind. Maybe just, you know, first thing off the bat, you, you said I know a lot about the guided munitions. Unfortunately, I know a hell of a lot more about the guided versus unguided aerial uh, threats and uh, capabilities of our adversaries than I do of us and our allies. That's just the, the side of the street I focus on. Um, yeah, sure. But, you know, and real quick, Ben, I'm like, but you do understand, I know you know this, right? They have unguided as well. No group, no army. Oh, absolutely. Completely yeah. has full capacity. Yeah, Your way, knowledge of our our enemies' capabilities certainly can translate to what our allies' capabilities are as well. Just want to, you know, give you a little boost there. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> now, I'm just trying to, to, to clear the air here. I was not going to say this is you know, one use of where you need a small diameter bomb versus a JDAM versus something else. I'm familiar with what we, what exists here in the U.S. arsenal. I'm familiar with some things in the Israeli arsenal. I was just trying to tell the, the audience I'm uh, much more intimately familiar with uh, the slightest gyrations of what is reported in our adversaries' arsenal than me keeping up every single day with the Israeli defense industrial base or the American defense industrial base. Um, but I am a student of history, uh, and I am a student of war. And exactly what you mentioned uh, the, about the reporting being a little bit breathless, this is exactly a Kodak moment. This is a Polaroid moment. This is not a video or a story in progress moment. Uh, these sorts of reports do happen. They are, in fact, designed to decontextualize um, uh, they're not useful, uh, I think, uh, even if one harbors an anti-Israel disposition, they're not useful because you don't learn enough about what's left in the arsenal. Uh, a country buys weapons or produces armaments or, you know, procures these capabilities in relation to its threats. I'm very glad you mentioned the northern threat from Hezbollah right now. Every single day in Israel, there is a new normal being established on the northern front. Uh, the presence of the U.S. carrier plus the forces that uh, Israel has at the north plus the fact that Israel has about 100,000 to 200,000 internally displaced persons um, plus the fact that, of course, they are trying to respond without provoking to the Hezbollah attacks, which include IRAMs, which include rockets, which include mortars, which include drones, which include rockets, um, without begetting that PGM volley 
that uh, the IDF and the IEF are most concerned about is part of why you may have to conserve some of these systems. Uh, but the fact that you know PGMs are uh, are being used uh, to begin with, or were used in the frontal part of the aerial campaign in Gaza, or the hold part of the clear and hold uh, element of the northern of the strategy when they moved into northern Gaza first, uh, is a sign that you know this is a different kind of war fighting capability that, that that the Israelis have. This is actually the polar opposite, I would say, of indiscriminate. When you are trying to first clear territory, hold territory, following, doing combined arms operations, uh, and then also ultimately doing the tough work of the, the tunnel investigations, which is leading to lots of deaths. By the way, there's tons of stories coming out about these booby trap tunnels. Uh, clearing and finding weapons caches in schools and mosques and hospitals and homes, most unfortunately. Uh, it, this stuff is messy. And there is a saying in Persian, uh, which it, it loosely translates to, they don't pass out sweets in war. Uh, and why I'm glad you mentioned that this reporting was breathless is it fundamentally misunderstands war. It's not to say that every move should not be taken uh, to prevent civilian casualties. Uh, I simply think that when you have an adversary like Hamas doing everything it does with human shields and a terrain like Gaza with its density consistently being compressed deeper and deeper and deeper uh, and weapons in these kind of civilian centers and fighters hiding among the civilian population and an entire code of conduct that is entirely antithetical uh, to the Geneva Convention, you know, Hamas quite literally is a terror organization uh, supported by the world's foremost state-sponsored terrorism, and both of them harbor genocidal uh, intentions towards the only Jewish state in the world, uh, things are going to look slightly different. But even when all of this uh, is taken into account, uh, there is no conflict in the world uh, in which most unfortunately civilians don't die. This is not a justification. Uh, this, is a, this is an understanding that even one death is too much. Uh, and that's why in general war often is pushed, even by states like Israel, uh, to the last possible option. And even by states like Israel that know the intent of Hamas, that had Hamas living on its doorstep, really, after they withdrew 2005-06, these operations could have been commenced with less precise weapons more than a decade earlier. They weren't because of an understanding, particularly in democratic societies, of the cost of war, the human cost of war. Uh, that's why, uh, for example, we take a corollary, uh, the Israelis or the Americans have not directly attacked the Iranian nuclear program, despite knowing full well, uh, what, you know, capability this, uh, what, 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 uh, what, uh, what, uh, what uh, strategy these capabilities are designed to underwrite. War is brutally messy. And that kind of one-off reporting that decontextualizes the data that, you know, disconnect the dots between the other threats that other armaments and other capabilities are supposed to be uh, attributed towards um, is designed to decontextualize uh, and disconnect the dots between the nature of war uh, and the nature of the war fighter. So, you know, this is this this gets very philosophical for me um, because as someone who doesn't want a single civilian death and who genuinely. Uh, is upset by all the civilian deaths that you've seen pre, post, and during uh, October 7 uh, and into the present. Uh, th this is why Hamas must not be permitted to win. Yeah, I love that version saying it's uh, 
don't pass out candy in war. That is just perfect. Um, or they don't they don't pass out candy in war. That would meaning to say that the things that happen in yeah, war are, are all ugly, so brutal. Or the Clausewitz line: the ultimate purpose of war is to serve itself. You know, some may take that here and try to decontextualize and uh, say, "Oh, you know, we're, we're justifying uh, these things," but this is this really is the case of no, no. We're trying to explain we have had the privilege in the West, particularly in America, to forget about the nature of war. It is a privilege alien to human history to have to forget about the brutality of war. You are speaking my language, uh, Benham. I, I got to tell you in numerous private conversations, um, I've been beating this drum. I mean, look, wars are horrible by nature. They should be avoided at all costs. And once they're begun, they should be prosecuted to the bloody end. And because, you know, extending the wars, ext- going, you want to ensure more civilian casualties in Gaza, try and fight this war with one hand held behind your back and watch this war drag out and watch more infrastructure be destroyed and more civilians being killed. Israel didn't ask for this war. It wasn't invaded on, or it, it, it didn't invade Gaza on, on October 7th. The opposite happened to a level of barbary that we haven't seen maybe since the genocide in Rwanda. I don't know. Um, there's something in between. Um, but yeah, no, Venom, you, you are speaking my language here. We should probably save that for another discussion. But yeah, I could not agree can, with can you more. Can I add two footnotes? Absolutely, keep absolutely. It, keep but it, it, it is hot, and I, I know myself I will absolutely forget, even though you said we should put a bit in No, there. no, listen, it's our, our podcast. We could talk about whatever the hell we want. <laughs> okay, so forgive me. But there's a corollary here, and you can totally take Israel out of the equation. Uh, it is about the politics of war, the optics of war, the luxury of having to know, having to not know what war looks like. Um, and the, sometimes the promise and sometimes the peril of being a U.S. partner in the Middle East. And right now I'm not talking about Israel. I'm talking about Saudi Arabia and the war uh, in Yemen, also a war that the Saudis didn't want. Uh, fundamentally, <laughs> Uh, you know, you look at the the history of the Houthis and the Saudis. You know, you go back to the Cold War. It was it was totally topsy turvy. It wasn't even the animosity that we see today. But the reason I'm saying this by the Houthi takeover of Yemen um, and the threat that would begin to pose uh, with the Saudis, the flirtation and the partnership that people denied in 2014, 15, and 16 between the Houthis and Iran, between the Houthis and Saudi Arabia's major geostrategic, political, economic. Uh, military and ideational competitor of the region, all of that was ignored, or all of that was wiped under the rug. And when the Saudis responded, and particularly responded to a world where the Obama administration had a different view towards Iran, and we would say, okay, Middle Eastern solutions to Middle Eastern problems, and the Saudis led the messy coalition in the way that they could and with the weapons that they did, and once the West, particularly America, did not like the optics of that war, despite pushing away from the table on the concerns and threats that were leading up to that war day to day in the Middle East. Um, You know, one of the first things that uh, was supposed to be cut was ISR, uh, you know, and in in general intelligence sharing and targeting equipment and aerial refueling. Well, all that stuff does make a U.S. part in the Middle East fight wars with one arm tied behind their back. And the non-sale of precision weaponry, well, what does that mean that that, that your partner uh, is left with to fight someone that they believe they have to fight against. Uh, 
uh, it will lead to more and more and more both political distrust between the U.S. and its partners in the region uh, and more civilian casualties, actually. Um, so the, the way we, we, we fight these wars, not with our adversaries, but with our partners and our allies, the way we fight the politics over these wars matters as much and impacts directly what our allies have to offer against their adversaries. Yeah, I'm going to uh, add to that. Um, slow motion with the Saudis and the Houthis. And it seems like that entire element is forgotten here. That's an excellent point. You're right. And and let's leave Israel out of this discussion, right? What about how we treated our Afghan partners? That doesn't look so good. How about how we've been treating our Ukrainian partners, right? As the offensive is failing, the you know Afghanistan needs no explanation, right? We abandon them. We leave them in the lurch. The, the Ukrainians issue now right the as the offensive is not going well then the recriminations begin but it's all done in leaks and behind the scenes and when articles in the new york times and the washington post if you're an ally of the united states you got to be looking and going boy when do i get my knife in the back at the you know our our foreign policy has not been serious for i mean i'll say the last decade but I, I mean, I'm sure it extends well beyond that. But we have not only sent the wrong messages to our enemies, and we're going to get with that with the Houthis very shortly, um, but to our allies. Our allies are getting all the wrong messages. And now, we, you know, I'm seeing images of President Vladimir Putin from Russia being fitted as he lands in Saudi Arabia and um, other, you know. Meanwhile, our secretary of state is left on the tarmac overnight. And not just in Saudi Arabia and left on the tarmac for several hours in in Turkey. I mean, these are, you know, those aren't accidents that these things happen. This is the perception. These are the, the problems that we've created and these the, the perceptions out there now in full view amongst our allies that we are becoming as each day goes on, we become less and less a serious partner. There's nothing to, to drive home that image about waiting on the tarmac than the previous trip Putin took to the UAE where you have, I believe it was, American jets painting the Russian flag in the sky. Admittedly, the flag is still red, white, and blue. You know, you could pretend it's the French flag if you don't want to pretend it's the American or Russian flag, but uh, welcoming the Russian president like that. I mean, obviously, there's, there's politics there, but this, this should remind us that why we need a diplomatic strategy towards the Middle East. This is not a soft man's, you know, kowtow, cop-out answer. This is, we need to know that we have to hold our friends' hands and then sometimes press those hands firmly, sometimes pull them in, sometimes whisper something in the ear, sometimes give them a tough but tender embrace. Uh, you, you can't, we can't just talk down to our friends and partners in the region, especially when our friends and partners in the region keep reminding us that they have options. Um, this is just worth noting. Yeah, look, you know, Auschwitz is right. I mean, war is an extension of politics, and we don't have a political diplomatic strategy in the military East, and therefore we're acting reactionary. And and it, this are there's not even between administrations a coherent policy, right? Look at the Iran and the, the JCPOA, and I mean, we can go on and on, Benham, uh, about this, and maybe we will focus a podcast on just this, but. I, I, yeah, I think you you really touched on it today that the our lack of strategy, our lack of diplomatic strategy, 
um, leads to, and let's get into this, our inability to respond to, to Houthi attacks on international shipping, not just on U.S. warships or Israeli warships or Israeli cargo, but international freighters and are being targeted. I look the last time I checked, and this number may have changed between now and very likely for you, the listener, between when we record at this moment and you get a chance to listen. There's been three attacks on international shipping in the last 24 hours. The Houthis are on a near daily basis attacking either there was a French warship that was targeted with two drones. U.S. warships have been targeted multiple times despite the Department of Defense trying to say, well, we're not sure if we were actually targeted in that attack, even though the drones were flying directly at U.S. warships. Uh, tankers have been hit with missiles. They've been boarded by, by Houthi fighters. And our reaction has been from the United States has been nothing. Now, look, I would argue this is an international problem, not just a U.S. problem, not just an Israel problem, because not just U.S. ships are getting targeted in this. And, you know, look, one of the oldest reasons that um, militaries were formed was to put down acts of piracy and banditry. Um, and yet we can't seem to figure out a way to respond to this other than issue mealy mouth warnings like we're considering what to do to like this literally came out. I don't know if it was the Defense Department or the State Department. It doesn't matter. Um, I think the last thing I read from them is like we're considering our options. Yeah, well, that'll get the Houthis to, to stop the attacks because they've been doing this since almost a month now, what it's been, what, three, three, four weeks now. And um, nothing we've said is going to make them stop. The only thing that's going to make them stop is a, is a harsh response. I don't, um, and what are your thoughts, Ben? They have to know such a response is coming, but if I can just back away from the Houthi aerial versus maritime threat for a second, sometimes things in life are brought to you by ironically, success. And this is why, again, I want to stress the U.S. needs a overall strategy for the Middle East, not just to offset for when we fumble or when our allies and partners fumble and how to stop our opponents and their opponents from taking advantage of it, but also how to respond to when our adversaries enact plans based off of the success of our plans. You know, I remember during the Trump administration's maximum pressure campaign, uh, a lot of the GOP folks, a lot of the Trump folks, a lot of the Republicans were enthralled with the economic success. Uh, and rightly, they should, because within about a year, year and a half's time, macroeconomically, they recreated the pressure that multilaterally took over a decade to create and inflict. This is an immensely powerful uh, tool of coercion and deterrence and punishment. That did not require a single shot to fire. But the problem is, given how successful this is, the adversary intends to respond. And that's where you know, the previous administration uh, had significant room for improvement. And the reason I'm saying that here is because the Israelis with, you know, reportedly having to use the F-35, with reportedly the Pac-3, with reportedly Arrow 2, and probably some other capabilities, uh, have been uh, intercepting Houthi suicide drones, Houthi land attack cruise missiles. Houthi medium-range ballistic missiles. Uh, we know, of course, of Aegis-enabled destroyers uh, in the Red Sea. Uh, also, uh, U.S. vessels helping to track uh, and detect and uh, destroy 
these longer range strike capabilities. So in the world where the architecture of deterrence by denial, whether U.S. or Israeli, prevented the Houthis from being able to act on what Long War Journal was the first organization to call the Houthis' willingness back in 2017 to enter a conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians, in the inability of the Houthis due to the success of this architecture of deterrence by denial to strike at Israel proper on land, they shifted. So in the face of the success of our deterrence by denial strategy, they are targeting now uh, the whole fleet of maritime vessels that they allege are Israeli-owned or controlled or are trafficking uh, areas that they believe should fall under their purview or ultimately that they believe will be docking in Eilat in southern Israel. Uh, and they're using, again, anti-ship cruise missiles provided by Iran, anti-ship ballistic missiles provided by Iran, suicide drones provided by Iran. Uh, to harass and target these vessels. Recently, I think about two days ago, based on when this podcast is being recorded and when it will come out, uh, you had an, almost an, an attempt to uh, to land a blow, I think using a suicide drone, uh, against a uh, vessel carrying fuel. Uh, imagine not just the environmental and political, but the strategic implications of uh, you know a fireball uh, in the Red Sea. Uh, and what that would do to insurance premiums on all other commercial vessels going there. So the success of our and the Israelis and our deterrence by denial strategy got the Houthis to shift to lower hanging fruit. And it's clear that in the absence of our, again, absence of a political strategy to understand what is the threshold to absorb, what is the threshold to warn, what is the threshold to respond in kind, and what is the threshold to escalate, in the absence of unanswered questions by both us and the Israelis uh, about how to respond to the Houthi threat, we're unfortunately going to see many more of these attacks. We are continuing to see more of these attacks. I think it is good news that the administration now wants to extend the logic of all those other task forces. They have task forces for the Strait of Hormuz, for the Persian Gulf, for the Arabian Sea, for the Indian Ocean, for the Gulf of Aden, uh, and they should extend them uh, for the Red Sea. Uh, there already is, you know, a couple of different multinational security, security international constructs there uh, for, you know, arms trafficking and detection, interception operations, um, older stuff that went from Iran to Yemen. Uh, if some of that stuff was as 100% successful, then the Houthis may not have had some of these more advanced anti-ship capabilities today. But I digress. If the administration is intent on broadening this coalition, I think that is great news. Uh, already there was a story that you flagged for me uh, about uh, uh, less than a week ago, Bill, of a French interception of an Iranian suicide drone. Even the French here uh, are involved and engaging in deterrence by denial. The question is, which one of this international coalition, which member of this, uh, if we do do what Jake Sullivan does and extend it, uh, is going to engage in that next step, which is to establish those thresholds and engage in deterrence by punishment? Uh, many people forget we have the USS Mason in the region. The USS Mason is not alien to this region. It is not even alien to the Houthi threat. In 2016, you remember and Long, Long War Journal documented the use of anti-ship cruise missiles. Uh, Iranian provided Chinese copies, I believe C-801s or C-802s, uh, anti-ship cruise missiles uh, being fired uh, towards the Mason. The U.S. Did, military did militarily respond. And for a period of time, that military response brought the lull and then the drop in direct attacks by the Houthis using Iranian-provided anti-ship capabilities 
against their naval assets. So again, there is a clear predicate. There is a historical predicate. There is just a question of our politics again. And this is where, let me bring in another complicating factor. If this wasn't messing up, there was a story a few days ago. Uh, and I want our audience to know this because, again, there are costs to not standing by your partner. Just like in the world of the U.S. not you know, taking the GCC position, particularly the Saudi position prior to the 2015 nuclear deal on how outsized the Iran regional threat is and how afraid these countries were of the Iran regional threat and then not being informed of this secret kind of multilateral track for diplomacy with the Iranians. And then again, the politics of the JCPOA in 2015, once they saw all of this, some of them, like the UAE hedged, others thought, just like the Saudis, that you have to take things into your own hands and you got the war in Yemen. Well, the war in Yemen, what's the current status of that today? There have been multiple ceasefires extended, despite the Houthis showcasing that during these periods of ceasefires, they have had revolutions in long-range strike capabilities. Again, the Houthis now are the only proxy of Iran to use anti-ship ballistic missiles. They're the only proxy of Iran to even possess, let alone use, medium-range ballistic missiles. These are game-changing military capabilities. And in this period of time, the Saudis have adopted a fundamentally different approach. Uh, they see the U.S. because of the politics, because of the optics that we mentioned, distancing itself both from the region as well as from the support for that campaign against the Houthis, as well as from any kind of clear political strategy as to what the future of Yemen should look like. And the Saudis now, based on this report from about a week ago, have been warning the Americans, oh, please, God, don't militarily respond because then the Houthis will go at us. The story is not clearly confirmed, but it is based on a couple of unnamed regional diplomatic sources. This is where I worry because in the absence of the lack of leadership and the clear and hard-nosed assessment of threats in the region, our allies are going to be vacillating, overcompensating and undercompensating just so that they can live another day. And in this world now, we have a force, Saudi Arabia, that maybe eight years ago was besieging us for help. And now they're going to be calling on us, uh, allegedly, for restraint. And it all comes back down to, well, how were you tough with the Houthis to begin with? Did you connect the dots between the Houthis and Iran to begin with? And that original failure continues to beget more and more and more policy problems for us. Yeah. And, you know, look, why is President Putin so welcome in his trip to Saudi Arabia? Right. I'm. He's consistent. Maybe 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 the Saudis are finally saying it's time to look. There's a couple of quick things, and then we're gonna we're gonna talk about Iran's di diplomatic strategy. You had mentioned the insurance, right? And um, that was something we had very early on. You you me and Joe um, discussed was the insurance rates. This is from 11 days ago. I'm gonna directly read this quote from from Reuters. Insurance industry sources said that war risk premiums had stayed firm on. Monday between 0.05% to 0.1% of the value of ship from around 0.03 estimated last week before the attack. So the 11 days ago, insurance rates doubled to tripled for ships traveling near Yemen. What do you think it is today after ships have been boarded, struck, U.S. warships have been attacked, French warships have been attacked? I think those rates have doubled and tripled again. Um you know, and I want to be very clear, this shouldn't be just a U.S. response to the Houthis. This should be an international response. It's just not U.S. and uh, warships, again, U.S. tankers. The, the international community, the Chinese, the Russians, they're, they're 
you know, either buying oil or or um, sending uh, goods through these routes. They everyone has an in, uh, an interest in in not seeing allowing, which is essentially a sophisticated form of piracy being conducted by the Houthis. So, um, but you know, we talked a lot about our lack of diplomatic and strategy. Benham, let's talk about Iran's diplomatic strategy. We talked a lot in previously about its military strategy with supporting the Houthis. Um, let's talk talk wider about its diplomatic strategy in the region. What does it seek from Israel's conflict with Gaza, with the standoff between Hezbollah and Israel in the north and beyond? You know, in, in general, I, I had mentioned the success of some of our policies sometimes, or the success of any policy, will cause an adversary or an opponent of that policy uh, to recalibrate. And in this case, where there was a real potential to develop a new least common denominator for Middle East security, and the potential really to create, you know, inshallah, a nonpartisan or a bipartisan and sustainable approach in the Middle East, and that was with the Abraham Accords and the continuous extension of that, that success spooked the Iranians. And in that sense, the uh, Iranian support for the Hamas operation cannot be divorced from the success of the normalization agreements. And you literally had the last speech Hamadeh was giving on October 3rd, before the October 7th operation, where maybe the last you know couple paragraphs of his speech were devoted to admonishing and punishing and trying to change the view of Arab governments who had already and were harboring intent to further normalize uh, with the Israelis. He literally said it's like betting on a losing horse. So ultimately here, this diplomatic success uh, that the U.S. had had, when you don't shepherd a success, when you don't take from the sapling and care for it and defend it and let it wither on the wine on, on, on the vines for a few years and ultimately rediscover it circa election time, as I think the administration did with the Saudi initiative, uh, despite not even wanting to use the word Abraham Accords for the first two years, most of the Biden folks were in office. Uh, this is exactly uh, what happens. Uh, you get the adversary believing that you're fundamentally unserious and them testing you and checking you in real world terms. And in the real world, that is with blood. And that's what makes uh, the cost of another mistake in the Middle East very, very scary. This is what I mean when I say Iran has a diplomatic strategy. It is able to read this. It is able to wait. It is able to calculate and recal recalibrate based on not just our defeats or shortcomings where that creates opportunities like Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria, as you've discussed and written at length for over a decade, but also of our successes, however limited. And the threat perception they have of any success or any win for the Middle Eastern order. And that's precisely why with the Arab states, they've been trying to do this, you could call it salami tactics, you could call it what the Italians call it, the politica del carciofo, the politics of the artichoke, deal with your enemies one at a time, rope-a-doping different elements of the GCC, uh, different relationship with Qatar, different relationship with Oman, different relationship with the UAE, and even after March and May, a fundamentally different diplomatic relationship with the Saudis. Again, all of this does not mean that there is depth, but it does mean that there is a new breath. They have a new ground game. Iran has a diplomatic ground game in the Middle East. And even unlike the Israeli ground game in Gaza, where it is centered on results, you know, the result 
uh, is the ultimate driver. The result is trying to eradicate Hamas, get rid of the terror tunnels, get rid of the weapons, get rid of the political infrastructure, uh, get rid of uh, the ability to launch future attacks, to not make Gaza a springboard for future attacks on Israel. That is a results-based approach. The Iranians right now have an ideological view of the results, but they have an unfortunately and worth noting realistic view of the process to effectuate those results. And we're in the Middle East right now watching these two different paradigms, the results-based one and the process-based one. And the Iranians have significantly less capability, but I think right now because they're focusing on process and owning the space diplomatically uh, for that process, uh, that the cost of us not having the process, even the Israelis not having the process, uh, matters a great deal. So this is just this divide between process and results. Uh, I would like to put uh, in, in the minds and ears and eyes of uh, LWJ listeners. Yeah, Benham, that is well said. I mean, what they lack in capabilities, they certainly make up for in organization and vision and boldness as well. For such a small country compared to the United States, compared to Europe, it certainly punches well above its weight. The Iranians are, are bold, they're well organized, and they do. They have a vision, a political goal that they seek to achieve through throughout the Middle East. Benham, thanks for joining us today. I'm really looking forward to getting you on every week, co-hosting the show with me. we got a lot of great things to talk about pleasure. Thank you so much and looking forward to it. Happy holidays, everybody. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just a reminder, you can find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review. Thanks again. We'll see you all again soon.